0: Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. This is one of those frightening chapters in the Bible. It is frightening because it is frighteningly misused in most of American Christianity. But it is also frightening because it promises us seasons of suffering. Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read just briefly verses 1 through 14 to give us a little context as we go to our sermon passage, which is from Acts 27. First, Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests and the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the prince, and Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem the letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that there may be, they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be, they increased there and not diminished. and seek the peace of the city, where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and praise to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to you your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Amen. Yes, I know that in Jeremiah 29, 11, he very famously promises that he knows that he has loving and kind thoughts and intentions for us. But of course, Jeremiah 29, 11 comes into the context of verses 1 through 10 and 12 through 14. In which the overwhelming, constantly repeated refrain is, I have driven you into exile. And I'm going to leave you there. And 70 years are going to go by. Does anyone know the life expectancy at the time of the exile for an average human being? Me neither, but it's less than ours. And ours is like 70 to 75. God is saying to His people, I have wonderful plans for you. Most of you are going to die in exile. Such wonderful plans. This is actually His message for us. I love you. I'm going to drive you into exile and there you will die. But I love you. My friends, much of Christian faith comes down to this question. Are you going to believe what you see or what he tells you? What do you do when the providence of God seems to contradict the promises of God? With that question in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Our sermon text this morning, at last... Is Acts chapter 27. I say it last because we have journeyed long with the apostles through their missionary enterprises. I also say it last because this sermon is three weeks delayed. I was expecting to preach it a month ago. Acts chapter 27, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 26. It'll break off in the middle of the action, but that's about all I feel like I can handle this morning the big story we'll take it in pieces acts chapter 27 verses 1 through 26 here again the word of the lord and when it was decided that we should sail to italy they delivered paul and some other prisoners to one named julius a centurion of the augustan regiment so entering a ship a ship of adrametium we put to sea meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go with his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days, and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Haven, near the city of Lycia, now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix. A harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocyclodon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sertis Sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food... Then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as he told me. However, we must run aground on some island. Amen. And amen. As I mentioned, this sermon is three weeks in the delay. But just to illustrate for you how Jesus doesn't waste time, let me briefly review for you the three sermons you unexpectedly heard in the lead-up to this message. Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Do I need to break down its relevance to this text? Boaz proves to be the kinsman redeemer that Ruth needs to save her. And then Nathan last week, Job must be stripped of all his earthly glory before he finds the heavenly grace and glory of God. I couldn't set this sermon up better if I tried. Three unrelated, disconnected, emergency sermons come racing into this pulpit. And Jesus goes, you'll need this one, and this one, and this one, and now you're ready for this one. He knows what he's doing. And that is, in fact, the exact point of this text. My friends, Jesus knows what he is doing. His providence always fulfills his promises. Indeed, to put it in the Gospel language, Jesus always saves those who are with Him. Jesus always saves those who are with Him. So my friends, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid when you travel with Jesus. Now, I want to look at this text in two parts. Notice at the beginning that God sets up a storm. Just like in Jeremiah 29, this storm is not a a happenstance of weather. It is a deliberate act on the part of God. He intentionally exposes them to this danger. Notice he does so first by giving them a good start. It was decided in verse 1 that they should sail to Italy. You'll have to remember a full month ago how the Apostle Paul has been in prison in Caesarea for two years. Watching the ships sail to Rome and he's longing to be on them. At long last his dream is coming true. Finally, the two year delay is over and he has passage on a Rome bound ship. He is excited about this decision. He boards with one named Julius a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. There were many Augustan Regiments. It was an honor to be called an Augustan Regiment, but it was an honor that was shared fairly widely among many regiments. And so we're not quite sure what that means, if anything. What is most important about Julius is found in verse 3, that he treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends when they stopped briefly at the city of Sidon. The city of Sidon is on the coast still connected to Paul's homeland. In fact, it's about the midway point between his birthplace in Tarsus and his upbringing in Jerusalem. Needless to say, Julius is taking a huge risk letting his prisoner wander free in the streets of Sidon where the apostle Paul probably has a bunch of friends and maybe even some family. Julius is a really nice guy. Julius trusts the apostle Paul. They're off to a good start. Paul is going to go as a prisoner of Julius, but of all the Romans to be a prisoner of, this one's pretty good. This is a good start. But also, notice that they find a ship. I've dreaded pronouncing this word, and I ended up pronouncing it right, but I mispronounced the word ship. So, you win some, you lose some. Entering a ship of Adrametium, that is a coastal-hugging puddle-jumper. This is like that little airplane that has one seat on one side and two seats on the other, and none of you want to be in it. It's, it's like that. It's a little tiny ship that just kind of hops along the coast. And they find it and they sail along the coast, and on board with the Apostle Paul is not only the very kindly Julius, but his good traveling friend, Aristarchus. Aristarchus is a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He has traveled with Paul all the way back to Jerusalem. He has been with Paul through his arrest, his imprisonment. He's a good friend. This is a good start to this trip. They start out well. My friends, we like good starts, don't we? I mean, how many of you sit around remembering childhood fondly? All the fun, all the laughter, all the sunshine. We like a good start. I mean, how many of you remember your wedding day fondly? We like a good start. All that romance, all those hugs and kisses, all that affection, it's a good start. How many of you remember fondly those children, those infants, so incredibly adorable when asleep, so incredibly sweet and heartwarming when asleep? They're so wonderful when they're asleep. And they're asleep like 22 hours a day. Isn't it just a good start? We as humans love a good start. And we should give thanks for it. Our God is gracious that He enters us into a world of trial and storm. But He does so kindly, giving us parents to help us along the way. Giving us a spouse. Giving us children who start out small and relatively well contained. Some of the older parents can testify they get bigger and harder to contain. Friends, we have good starts and we should give thanks for them. And let's not just rush over them and get to the heart of the action. Let's remember to take a deep breath and to say, you know what? Sometimes you wake up in the morning. And you're not in pain. And sometimes it's a good start. Sometimes you wake up in the morning. And the kids sleep in. And it's quiet in the house. And it's a good start. Right? Sometimes God gives us these sweet starts. For which we should give thanks. And rejoice. But of course this story is about catastrophe. This story is about loss. And so while we should stop and give thanks to God for our good starts, we should also notice that He immediately introduces a warning sign. Having moved along the coast, they at last have to strike out into the open water to cross over to the island of Cyprus. And when they put to sea in verse 4, and once they get away from the coast and into the open water... They find a contrary wind. This slows them down. Notice verse 5. They had to slow down. Guess that's not verse 5. That's verse 7. They were slowed many days, arriving with difficulty, the wind not permitting us to proceed, sailing under the shelter of Crete. I checked with our local sailing expert this morning when he arrived, and he assured me that the word is tacking. That, that what they're facing is this headwind that is driving their boat backwards. So to make their way to Cyprus, they have to zigzag back and forth into the wind and out of the wind. It's a very skillful thing to do. It's a very time-consuming and energetic thing to do. And by the time the sailors reach Cyprus, they have lost entire days. They are exhausted and needing of rest. It is a difficult thing to plow the wind. And my friends, this is how often our lives go, is it not? That we begin with a good start. Childhood full of its joy and its laughter and its carefree pleasures soon passes away to what? School and work. Do you know what the number one most shocking thing is to most college graduates? Your job doesn't give you the summer off. All of a sudden, there's a headwind, and it just doesn't stop. One of the big things I gave up in biking here instead of Oklahoma was headwinds. I know that we'll still complain about headwinds, but we haven't seen headwinds like we saw in Oklahoma. Just plowing the wind effortlessly, endlessly full of effort, not effortlessly. They need to struggle and to strive, and this happens to us. The honeymoon passes and the marriage fills with strife, conflict, frustration, arguments, debates, fears, doubts, unmet and unexpressed expectations. And we find ourselves plowing the wind. Our children grow up and they don't want to talk to us. Our children grow up and they leave us. Our children grow up and they become someone we didn't imagine they would become. And it's a stunning realization of how little and powerless we really are. And we find ourselves plowing the wind. One of my friends out west said, parenting is like siege warfare. You're just bombing this little heart with love and with truth, hoping something crumbles before they leave. It's a long, hard work. And what we're summoned to as a congregation in this city is not a short effort. I would use the marathon illustration, but I'm afraid it's actually an ultra-marathon. My friends, we are summoned to run a race that doesn't end until we're dead. There is a headwind before us, and we are to go into it all our lives. We have a good start, but how do we survive The pressing wind. Unfortunately, Paul is the only one who perceives the nature of this headwind. While it delays them and increases their exhaustion, once they have arrived at Fair Havens, which sounds like a pretty good place to hang out, doesn't it? And they settle in at Fair Havens. Very soon after, Paul advises them, Men, it is far too late to sail. Paul is not a sailor, he's not a professional, this is not expert opinion, this is in fact common sense. It is almost winter, storms come to the Mediterranean Sea in winter. It's not a good sailing time, everyone in the group knows this, no one is going to deny this, but Paul is the only one in the group whose interest in getting to Rome is sufficient to cause him patience. Do you see that? Everyone aboard this ship wants to get to Rome, and they want to get there as fast as possible. Paul has already had a two-year delay. He wants to get to Rome, and he wants to get there as soon as possible. The helmsman, the centurion, the centurion is probably a Roman who wants to get back to Rome to his wife and kids. The helmsman, the ship's owner, they have a cargo hold full of grain from Alexandria. They want to get to Rome at the very end of the season, you know, when prices are really high. They want to be the last boat to dock. They will get premium money for their grain before winter sets in and no one can buy grain. This is a great opportunity and they want to take it. Those whose hearts are filled with longing for family, filled with longing for home, filled with longing for wealth and prosperity, say, let's Risk it. And Paul stands alone. With a different motive. With a different point of view. And says, let's wait. Isn't this extraordinary? That Paul should see the headwind and say, let's not put down our heads and pedal faster, harder. I know there's only like two of you that get that illustration, but... Let's not strive against the wind with greater vigor and effort. Let us instead wait. Let us wait for the Lord of the wind to change the season and the time. My friends, is this not a hard and difficult thing to do? I know that I relate far more to the helmsman, the centurion, the ship owner. I see the risk, but I see the reward. Let's take the risk. Let's go on an adventure. Let's see if we can make good on this. And God says through Paul sometimes you should wait, sometimes you should be at peace and stay where you are. My friends, this is what God is doing, He's giving them a good start. He's giving them a a slowing down. He's giving them this opportunity to stop and to wait on Him. So often throughout the scriptures, we see the words, be still. Psalm 4, when you are angry, be still and meditate within your heart. Exodus 14, trapped between the death of the Red Sea and the death of Pharaoh's army. The people of Israel are told, be still. God will fight for you. In Psalm 46, we are told, be still and know that I am God. I fear, my friends, that Boston has intoxicated us with the alcohol of busyness. And we feel that haste and energy and effort is the sure sign of piety. And Scripture would have us believe otherwise. Scripture would convince us that sometimes sitting down for a season and waiting for God is an exercise in faith. See clearly how God sets them up and says, here's a great opportunity for you to trust Me. Sit down. Show your faith in Me. Sit down. Don't try. Don't struggle. Rest. They are not persuaded by Paul's argument. And they put to sea. But notice closely, friends, how clever and how thoughtful their putting to sea is. Notice in verse 13, they decide... Verses 12 and 13. They decide... That they're going to go, not out into the open sea, because Paul is right. That's too dangerous. What they're going to do is they're going to go from this mediocre harbor where they don't want to stay to a really good harbor where they can stay for the whole winter. That harbor, I actually don't have an exact number. I'm guessing it's about 30 or 40 nautical miles, is right along the southern edge of Crete. This is a really safe maneuver. This is a really small maneuver. They're going from the middle of southern Crete to the western edge of southern Crete. And they're going to stick, it says in verse 13, really close by the land of Crete. Do you see this? That having had a good start, having had this massive slowdown, eager to make just the smallest gain, they set out to get one port closer to Rome, and then they'll call it a day. This is a very small effort that they're making here. This is a very safe effort that they're making here. But no sooner do they get out of the Fair Havens, having got this little... Do you see this in the text? They get this this little soft wind blowing. Now the soft southern wind comes up off the Mediterranean and it pushes the boat toward Crete. This is perfect. A gentle southern breeze that will keep them close to the coast of Crete so that they can just sail nice and easy, just a little pleasure cruise, over to this superior harbor to spend the winter. The plan is brilliant. Before I lower the boom, beware brilliant plans. The sooner do they get to where the water is deep, to where the waves begin to pitch the boat, they have cleared the harbor when the wind from the south that was soft and gentle comes switching around from the north, racing off the mountains of Crete and driving their boat into the open water. Do you know what you call this? This is a trap. And it's God's trap. Do you remember what Topper told you three weeks ago about the Sea of Galilee? His disciples were terrified of that place. And what did Jesus say? I got an idea. Let's sail across it at night. Do you remember what Chris said about Ruth? A widowed woman in a foreign country. You know what? You should go talk to the lone guy in the middle of the night and propose marriage. See how that goes. Do you remember what Nathan said just last week about Job? Satan appears among the children of God. And God looks at him and says, what are you up to? And he says, oh, I'm roaming the earth to and fro. You know what 1 Peter adds to that line? Seeking someone to devour. With that idea in his head, God turns to Satan and says, have you tried chewing on my servant Job? He's tasty. He's tasty. Who brought the fear-filled disciples into the heart of the sea in the middle of the night? Jesus. Who sent Ruth to the threshing floor in the middle of the night? God. Who summoned Job to the attention of Satan? And said, why don't you give him a try? God. My friends, our God is not your toy. He is not tame. He is sovereign. And He is good. And it is He who has settled this ship in the center of this storm. He had that slowing headwind that made them arrive at just the right time. He had that soft, gentle breeze that made them think they could put to the water. And He had that Eurocyclone waiting in His back pocket. To hurl down the mountains of Crete and send them into utter despair. The Eurocyclodon, if you're holding an ESV, is translated for you, yes? It's the Greek word. You've heard it before. In fact, you heard it a couple weeks ago. It's a nor'easter. We had one just a few weeks ago. It dropped a tree down in Damien and Chinda's backyard. It is a swirl of magnificent force, great wind and rain. And it drives the ship out into the open ocean. In the second half of our story, notice now, my friends, the responses to the storm. As the ship is running out into the open sea, the sailors first respond to the storm with optimism. Notice that in verse 15, knowing that the ship is caught and that they cannot tack anymore, that the storm is so strong and great They instead turn the ship into the storm to be driven by it. Secondly, they secure the skiff as they pass under the shelter of the island of Clauda. That is, they are taking aboard their ship, the little rowboat that allows them to go from ship to shore. By securing this aboard their vessel, they make their vessel more aerodynamic, more streamlined. It will race with the wind even faster. What is more, it will leave intact that ship, that little rowboat, so that when the day comes, they can escape from their ship in the rowboat. There is an optimism here. They expect to outrun the storm, they expect to stay at the front edge of the storm and to be pushed by it to safety. Likewise, verse 17, they take cables to undergird the ship, to strengthen and tighten the hull, that it would not leak and allow water through the boards. Also so that it would be a stiff, sturdy, and strong bottom, should they strike the surtis Sands, and they strike the sail and wait. The surtis Sands... How many of you know where the citizens are? They're the coast of North Africa. These sailors have just secured their ship for a cross of the Mediterranean Sea. They expect to successfully navigate the entire Mediterranean Sea and come safely to North Africa. This is an incredibly optimistic plan. They expect to survive this storm. They expect by skill and cunning and security and strength, they be able to sail through it and come safely to North Africa. And my friends, is it not often so with us? Is it not often the case that we respond to our storms in life in such a manner? Let me flex my muscles. Let me use my skill with my winning wisdom and my cunning I shall bring together the solution to this problem. I know how to fix this. I will try harder. I will work more. I will plan better. Do you know what one of the most popular reading habits among evangelical Christians is right now? Productivity literature. How to be more efficient. How to be more productive. Isn't that funny? How to work harder, how to get more done. I don't decry it. I've actually read some of it myself and benefited from it. But my friends, let us recognize that our God does not steer us into the storms of life because he means for us to discover within us the skills and the strength that are necessary to overcome. He does not mean, like a good American, to bring out your best you. That's not his goal. And the sailors discover it tragically and quickly. You see, they very soon realize, verse 18, that this is not going to work. On the very next day, exceedingly tempest-tossed, they lighten the ship. They take the extraneous cargo, they take the extra supplies, and they throw them overboard. That's cutting into the owner's profit. Next time he lands, he's going to have to buy all that stuff he just dumped into the ocean. That cuts into their likelihood of surviving a long journey. If they're at sea all the way to North Africa, they're going to need a pretty good supply of food and water. And they're giving it up. They are abandoning all their margin And this is what we do, isn't it? We become overwhelmed by the trials of life. So what do we do? We fill the schedule more. Just a little more meeting. Just a little more. Stick it into the schedule. I've got time. Let me give up this margin. We eat up the little time that we have. We give up our margin. A little more money, a little more budget. We take whatever extra and excess our God has given us and we throw it at the problem. And then we find ourselves exhausted and burned out. On the third day, they take the ship's tackle and throw it overboard with our own hands. Do you know what you can do with a ship that has no tackle? Nothing. Can't sail. The sails are in the ocean. Can't steer. The rudder's in the ocean. They have turned this into a floating wooden tub. They have abandoned their ability to manage the storm. They are getting right where God wants them to go. Verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Do you see their descent into despair? They take their margins, they take their extras, they throw them overboard. Then they take the very essential tools that they need to be sailors, to sail on a ship, and they throw them overboard. And this is exactly what we do when God throws crises in our lives. We throw out our margins, and we throw out our extras, and when that goes, we throw out ourselves, and then pretty soon we say, I have no hope left. I don't know what to do. I have thrown everything I have at this storm. And they finally give up hope. They have gone from optimism to pessimism. And my friends, let me suggest to you that this is an organic and natural progression. That those of us who face struggles in this life and choose to meet it with an optimistic outlook on our own abilities and strength will soon find us descending into despair. And those of us who find ourselves worried about our inability... probably can trace ourselves back to a point in time... where we chose to fight the storm by ourselves. Let me show you a better way. There is a third response to the storm. Not optimism. Striving in strength and in skill. Hoping for the distant shore... Not pessimism, throwing everything overboard and abandoning hope. No, let me show you the way of faith. Verse 21. After long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, I cannot skip this phrase. Paul stood in the midst of them and said, What? is the first inkling of hope for those of us who are soaked to the bone and storm-tossed at sea. Jesus stood in the midst of us and said, What is it that the disciples learn in the boat on the Sea of Galilee? Who's with us? Who is this who is with me in the boat? What is it that we who are tossed by the storms of this world must learn to see? We are not alone in the boat. There is a Savior with us, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul stands in the midst of them and he speaks hope. He speaks of true hope, something to believe when the night is dark and the storm is high. Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster or loss. I'm not sure what Paul means by that. If he's just bragging or picking on them or what he's doing. But I urge you to take heart. Take heart. This is the message that Paul received in verse 24. Be not afraid. Do not be afraid, Paul. He passes along to his fellow shipmates that which he had heard from the angel. Take heart, do not be afraid. What we have heard from the resurrected Jesus, who said to all who were terrified in His presence, Do not be afraid, it is I. Those storm-tossed disciples pitched in the boat, watch as this awesome specter comes walking on wind and wave to them. And He says to them, Do not be afraid, it is I. My friends, this is the answer to the wind and the waves. This is the answer to the storms of our lives and the storms in our hearts. We look at Jesus and hear Him say, Be not afraid. This is me. I have done this. And I am with you in this. Paul promises them, There will be no loss of life. Why? Why? They'll lose the ship, but everyone will be saved. Why? Verse 24. The angel said to Paul, Be not afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Why do everyone live on this boat? Because Paul. Has prayed for them and God has granted them to him. You know what some of the sweetest words are that you can hear in all your storms? Someone walks up to you, the pastor walks up to you, your friend, your family, your spouse, and they say to you, I am praying for you. Do you know what Jesus in Acts 27 says? I am praying for you. You see, this is the extraordinary gospel that we have. A God who steers us intentionally into storms, only to put His arm around us and to say to us, I'm with you. A God who drives us with a mighty wind into the most hopeless of places, only to put His arm around us and say to us, I am praying for you. And you have been granted to me. Do you know that your Jesus prays for you? As much as you want your pastor to pray for you, as much as you want your friends and family to pray for you, my friends, far more take comfort in this. Your Jesus prays for you. He prays for you and you have been granted to him. Take heart. Take heart. But just as you take heart, just as you are not afraid, because your Christ is with you, because your Christ prays for you, notice also, lastly, verse 22 and 26, you must lose the ship. Like Job and all of his earthly possessions and ambitions, like the disciples, with all of their sailor-like experience and skill and strength, like Ruth, and all of her Moabitus identity, you must die. Your ship must sink, and you must run aground. Salvation in Jesus Christ does not lie in a successfully run life. It is not found In a well-ordered morality, salvation in Jesus Christ is found continually in the shipwrecks we see one another to be. When we come crashing and say, I have no more. Our brothers and sisters need to be there to put our arms around each other and say, That's okay. You never need it to be more. It's not your boat and it's not your sea." It's Jesus' storm, and He is your Savior. My friends, Jesus saves all who are with Him. Jesus saves everyone who is with Him. Do not be afraid. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for this beautiful story. For the way your spirit inspired it from the pen of Luke. Who actually felt beneath his feet the tossing of this very boat. Who actually felt the spray of this sea. And heard the howl of this storm. And yet we give you thanks that Luke through your spirit's power wrote it in such a way. As to teach us the strength of our union with Christ. That we should hear today, not a summons to be strong, but a summons to trust in the strength of Christ. And we pray now, O God, that you would grant us such faith. That we would turn away from our ambitions and dreams, and our sinful efforts to make good. And set aside our self-righteousness and our pride. And that you would, by your Spirit's grace, lead us to the shelter and the safety that is found in Christ alone. And this week we pray that you would establish our hearts. That we would not be afraid. But that we would take heart. And live with a holy boldness that comes from knowing that Christ has got us safe. We ask these things in his name. Amen.